0: Welcome to the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. My name is Zach. I pastor a church located just outside of Athens, Georgia called Calvary 316. Once again, we're located in Georgia. Uh, Had someone recently attend our church, uh, heard us on the radio on Grace FM in Colorado, just moved, and they were blown away when they found out that Calvary 316 was 10 minutes away from them. And I asked, well, you know, I open the show all the time saying we're from Athens, Georgia, but they had totally missed that. They thought we were from California, which I'm not sure if that's a compliment or not. Um, sorry if you're from, from California. Um, I am born and bred Georgian and am proud of it. I do hope that you stay with me over the next hour as we seek to deconstruct the negative perceptions of Christians by boldly and brashly discussing today's relevant topics in an honest and genuine way. Just in a matter of a little bit of housekeeping to get some stuff Uh, move to the side so we can get to the topic of tonight. I do need to say that uh, one of the important aspects of the Outlaw Radio Show is our desire to connect with you, the audience, so that if you have questions or want to challenge something that was said, or even if there's a topic that you would like us to talk about, and and, and we we say this all the time, nothing's off limits, uh, there are several ways that you can connect with us, you can reach us, you can communicate with us, uh, email Info at outlawradio.org is our email address. Uh, Facebook, The Radio Outlaw. Facebook.com, The Radio Outlaw. And then uh, our Twitter handle is at Radio underscore outlaw. As always, if you're interested in having your question played live on the air, you can call me directly at 678-883-3316, and leave a voicemail. That's also the church line, so make sure that you you notate that this is for Outlaw Radio. Once again, the number is 678-883-3316. Please keep your question pithy. My producer, Josh, hates that word. I will also say don't bloviate. Uh, if you keep it pithy and you don't bloviate, you keep it direct, to the point. We may even play your question live on the air. Today is... Today's Good Friday. Whether uh, most of our stations air the show on Friday evenings, um, a few on on Saturday. Good Friday, is where I'm sitting, and this is what I want to talk about. I want to talk about Good Friday, because in so many ways, the phrase itself, Good Friday, kind of comes across like an oxymoron, because on on this Friday the greatest tragedy that's ever happened in the history of planet earth occurred. Like on the surface, you would say that it should be evil Friday or tragic Friday, but good is, is not a word on the surface anyway that you would attribute to this particular day. And in, and in our episode, there's, there's two things, two topics that I want to address. First, I want to take the opportunity here and I want to establish a a timeline for what we know of uh, Christ's week of passion. You know, all of the events that were leading up to what occurred on Friday and then what would occur uh, on what we know as Easter. And then I also want to just specifically address or examine what happened on this day known uh, as Good Friday. So let's begin by just kind of an overarching sense talk about the timeline for Christ's week of passion, Uh, this last week. yeah, It's weird to say the last week of Jesus' life, because it wasn't. Uh, It wasn't the last week at all, but I think you know what I mean. And really, as you're trying to establish a timeline for the week of passion, uh, there are three things, admittedly, that make this kind of difficult. Um, One, I should point out, you know, none of the gospel writers actually include all of the details of of this last week, uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John don't include all of the details. And, and and secondly, none of the gospel writers even write in a very particular chronological order. Uh, some of them do, some of them don't. And then the other thing, the third thing that makes establishing a timeline um, is that the Jewish day began and ended very differently than ours. So we go from twelve midnight to. 12 midnight, 12 to 12. Uh, but the Jewish day began and ended at 6 PM or, or really sunset. Uh, this was established back in Genesis where we're told over and over and over again, that evening and morning were the first day. And so the Jewish day began and ended at 6 PM. Uh, which means let's say if you're listening to this episode at nine, 10 o'clock Friday night, um, Thursday ended at 6 p.m. So you're actually at the beginning of the day and not the end. Now, please note that during this week of passion, Jesus stays in a town called Bethany. Bethany was a suburb of Jerusalem, and Bethany was located about one and a half miles to the east of Jerusalem. Bethany, the town, was situated on the southeastern slope of what's known as the Mount of Olives. And it was the home of three biblical characters, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So during this week of passion, Jesus is lodging in Bethany. He's not staying inside the city proper, but the suburbs. And so every day he goes in and then he comes out. Now the, the week begins with what we know as Palm Sunday. This is Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And if you read the account, Jesus sends two of his disciples ahead He's making his way from Bethany to Jerusalem, sends two disciples ahead to find a donkey. They find the donkey. Jesus then triumphantly rides into Jerusalem, presenting himself to Israel as the Messiah. And this is that iconic scene where everyone starts taking palm branches and laying them down and laying their their cloaks down. And they're, they're heralding Jesus as the Messiah, the King of the Jews. And there's that moment where the Pharisees, the religious leaders, rebuke Jesus. Say, you need to rebuke the the, the multitudes. And Jesus makes the comment, this is my day, predicted by Daniel the prophet, back in Daniel chapter 9. And if the people were silent, even the rocks would cry out. So Jesus' triumphal entry occurs on Palm Sunday. Now Monday, so Jesus leaves, goes back to Bethany, comes back on Monday, And on the way into Jerusalem, Jesus does something interesting. He curses the fig tree, keeps going. He's hungry, wants a breakfast snack, goes to this fig tree. There's no fruit, curses the tree. Then he enters the temple and he he drives out the corrupt money changers. Well, Tuesday ends up being a day of controversy, a day of teaching, Jesus is publicly defending his claims to be the Messiah. He's using parables. It's in this scene that as he's leaving, Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. He predicts the coming destruction of the temple. He then explains, Peter recognizes that this fig tree is now withered. It's died. He explains why he cursed the fig tree. Jesus, he stops on the way out at the Mount of Olives. He gives a sermon, uh, about, uh, End times about final things—a prophetic sermon uh, that's known as the Olivet discourse. Goes back to Bethany. Spends the night. Wednesday, we don't have any information. Wednesday is is a silent day. We don't know what Jesus did on Wednesday. Uh, Thursday was all spent preparing for the Passover Seder. It's 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 historically known as Monday, Thursday. Uh, the preparations. They spend the day prepping, getting all the materials, the supplies. Uh, procuring the upper room. The Passover would officially begin at sunset. Uh, Now note sunset um, here being on on Thursday. Now Friday, uh, Friday would begin at 6 p.m. And so from really 6 p.m. on Thursday, uh, on Wednesday to 6 p.m. Thursday, that's Thursday, 6 p.m., on Thursday technically begins Friday. And that's one of the reasons that this gets confusing because the way that the days work. And in Friday, a lot of things happen. They, they wrap up celebrating Passover. Jesus is arrested. Uh, he's tried. There's the crucifixion, his death, his burial. Now, now let's go through this in, in some sequence. At sunset, now this is Thursday. So Thursday night at 6 p.m. Friday begins Passover. And it's on this day that the Passover is celebrated by Jesus and his disciples in the upper room. And Passover, if you don't know, goes all the way back to the book of Exodus, where the children of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. It's the final plague. The angel of death is going to kill all the firstborns, firstborn in Egypt. Moses tells the children of Israel that they needed to slaughter a lamb, paint the blood over the doorposts. Uh, baked unleavened bread because the next day they were going to be going and that the angel of death would pass over uh, any home with the blood of the lamb. And so passover is this celebration of God's deliverance and his provision, etc. Well, at the end of what's known as the Seder, this dinner, the Passover Seder, Jesus does something interesting. Uh, he takes he takes a tradition that had been in place for 2,000 years, and he flips it on its head. Jesus institutes what's, what's known as the Last Supper. He takes, he takes the cup and he takes the bread. He said, this bread, the Aflacoman, um, is my body. It's represented this for 2,000 years, Isaac, but today it represents me. So anytime you gather, eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me and the cup, the cup of redemption, signified now his blood. So Jesus institutes communion, this last, the last supper, which then is followed by what's known as the upper room discourse, another teaching where Jesus girds himself and proceeds to go around to wash the disciples' feet. And Peter stands up and says, you're not going to wash my feet. And Jesus is like, if I don't wash you, not speaking of his feet, then you'll have no part with me. And Peter's like, misses the point, obvious Peter. And he's like, well, then don't wash my feet, wash everything. You know, Jesus is like, good grief, Peter. Now, at some point during this evening, this dinner, Jesus and the disciples, they leave the upper room. Now, during the dinner, Jesus identifies Judas as the betrayer. Judas has left. The disciples, the 11 apostles, those who are still there, they leave the upper room. Likely there were others that went as well. They go to Gethsemane. Now, Gethsemane, the, the word Gethsemane, it's its the Garden of the Olive Press. And, and the Garden of Gethsemane was located at the base of the Mount of Olives. And that makes sense. The, a mountain of olives, of olive trees, would have a garden um, or an olive press at, at, at the base of the mountain. And they go there specifically to pray. So it's in the middle of the night. Friday night really late Thursday night, early Friday morning in our time timeline. They go to pray. And while in the garden, you know, Jesus, there's this scene where he is, uh, he takes three further into the garden. They fall asleep. We're told that Jesus sweated droplets of, of blood. There's the scene where Jesus, he prays, you know, to his father, if, if this cup, if there's any other way, let this cup pass but not my will but your will be done and he rebukes the apostles for sleeping peter james and john and then there is a a, a mob that approaches it's dark the mob's only seen by the the torches the torchlight. and it's and it's then that that judas bringing the temple guards with him having betrayed jesus for 30 pieces of silver bringing the temple guards to this isolated garden, Jesus, just a few followers, the middle of the night comes up and he identifies Jesus with a kiss and understand that this was, this was a great betrayal for really months. You could even say a year, the religious establishment in, in Jerusalem wanted to kill Jesus. They wanted to arrest him. They wanted to kill him. They hated him. But the problem was is because of Jesus's popularity they could never arrest Jesus without inciting some type of a mob a, a reaction. They needed to know when Jesus would be alone and isolated and that the mob wouldn't know what was happening. And this garden scene was the perfect timing. Judas providing the right opportunity to hand Jesus over. And so he's arrested and there's this scene, you know, Jesus has already predicted this. He's already said that that this is why he was going to Jerusalem. Um, the disciples have not gotten it. Peter even makes the comment, um, "I'll go down with you. You know, I I won't deny you. I won't betray you. I'll fight." You know, he pulls out his 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 dagger. To his credit, everyone flees, but Peter stands up and he and he attacks a servant boy named Malchus and cuts off his ear. And Jesus has to put his ear back and and when they ask. Where's Jesus? He says, I am he, and Boom! Everyone falls down according to the Gospel of John. Just a radical scene. Now listen, we're approaching a hard break. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with this thought. Hear more on the Outlaw Radio Show.
1: Hi, my name is David Guzik and I'm a friend of Zach and the entire team at Outlaw Radio. One of the things I like most about Outlaw Radio is Zach's desire to challenge Christians to think critically, ask relevant questions, and then pursue answers on their own. The sad reality is too many Christians don't know what they believe, yet alone why they believe what they do. This is why, in addition to Outlaw Radio tackling the tough topics you might not hear at church on Sundays, their desire is to equip, inspire, and challenge you to dig into God's Word and wrestle with these complex topics on your own. To help you in this process, Zach wanted me to let you all know of two free resources essential for any serious Bible student. Aside from my full Bible commentary available at EnduringWord.com, the resources you can access at blueletterbible.org will truly transform the way you study the Bible. Aside from their treasure trove of free commentaries, blueletterbible.org also has an incredible word search function, making it easy to dive into the original languages behind a biblical text. So if you wanna dig deeper into your study of scripture, check out EnduringWord.com as well as BlueLetterBible.org Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio show. We're talking about the timeline
0: of events for a week known as Jesus' Week of Passion. This this final week that begins with Palm Sunday, his triumphal entry, uh, reaches a real low point on this day we call Good Friday, Jesus' crucifixion, but then reaches a crescendo um, with Resurrection Day, Easter Sunday, where we left things off is that Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's in prayer, but he's betrayed by one of his own. Judas brings the temple guards; they arrest Jesus. The disciples scatter. To Peter's credit, he takes out a dagger. He goes after a servant boy named Malchus, cuts off his ear. Jesus heals him, but Jesus is taken away. and And that night, late in the evening, Jesus is tried twice. He's taken before Ananias, and then he's taken again before Caiaphas. Long story, both high priests, both very powerful men. So he's taken before Ananias, then he's taken before Caiaphas, and then at some point in the morning, Jesus is tried formally before the Sanhedrin, which was the formal ruling body, 70 plus one, the religious leaders. Uh, This would be technically Jesus's third trial. Now, it's in that instance that jesus is formally charged with blasphemy which according to jewish law was punishable by death but there was a hang up and the hang up is that the jewish people uh, their right to capital punishment had been revoked by the by the roman by the roman authorities meaning that in order for jesus to actually be crucified or to be executed they would have to convince Pontius Pilate or the Romans that he was worthy of such a a punishment. So Jesus is found guilty of blasphemy, but that is why he's then sent by the Sanhedrin to Pilate, who's the Roman governor, which now becomes the fourth trial where Pilate interviews Jesus and finds him, interestingly enough, to be innocent. Now, realizing that this particular decision would upset the Sanhedrin, Pilate's looking for a, a loophole. So he finds out that Jesus is from Galilee. That region is in the jurisdiction of King Herod, who happens to be in Jerusalem for, for Passover. So Pilate, kind of thinking he can get out of making this ruling, sends Jesus to Herod, which is the fifth trial. But Jesus won't answer Herod anything. Won't utter a word, we're told. And this is the same Herod that had had John the Baptist executed Jesus' cousin, And so Pilate, sending him to Herod, Herod now also, in the sixth trial, finding Jesus to be innocent, sends him back to Pilate. Now Pilate, there's a hot potato happening here. The Jewish people, the Jewish authorities, want him dead. Pilate's found him to be innocent. Herod's found him to be innocent. But Pilate realizes that if he doesn't sentence him to death, though he's innocent, he might have a mob on his hands, an uprising, Jerusalem has swelled because of Passover to a million people. It's overcapacity. It's a powder keg. There's revolution in the air, which is why when Jesus first arrived, they were chanting him, King, Messiah, Deliverer. And so Pilate looks for a loophole. So he takes Jesus and Barabbas, this criminal, presents them to the, the people. This is in the morning. This is all before 9 a.m. And what happens is that the people begin to cheer out out that they want Barabbas and not Jesus because the custom is that Pilate would release, in good faith, a criminal. Someone that the people wanted, thinking clearly they would want Jesus, but this was all rigged by the religious establishment. This chant, crucify him, crucify him, it's not the mob. It's not the same people that were cheering for Jesus uh, to be king. These were hand-picked people. This was, a man, this was fake news, a fake cra- crowd. This was astroturfing. Crucify him, crucify him. Most people, understand, don't know Jesus has been arrested. Don't know he's been tried. Don't know where he is. Most people have no idea that Jesus is about to be executed. Pilate washes his hands. Says, may I be innocent of the blood of this man? And he sent- sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion. From there, Jesus is taken to Gabbatha, which is the fortress of Antonio. Jesus is scourged, trying to, to coax the confession. Jesus doesn't confess, but he's scourged. And then a little bit before 9 a.m., 8.30, 8.15, 8.45, somewhere in there, Jesus is given a cross that he has to carry. He travels the Via Della Rosa to be crucified at Golgotha, the place of the skull, a common execution place. Then around 9 a.m., Jesus is crucified, and he'll hang on the cross for approximately six hours. What's noteworthy is that at noon, we're told that the sky became dark. At 3 p.m., Jesus cries out. The last of seven, seven statements that he makes from the cross, but he cries out, it is finished. And Jesus dies. And immediately at his death, some supernatural events occur, according to the gospel writers. There's a great earthquake. So it's dark. There's a great earthquake. The veil in the temple is torn. Graves are opened. And it's at that point that the Roman centurion, the Roman soldier, standing there at the cross, seeing these things occur, makes the comment, truly this man was the son of God, recognizing they had just executed not a normal man, and definitely a man that was innocent. Now, sometime before sunset, so Jesus dies at 3 p.m., but before 6 p.m., several things happen. Now, 6 p.m. is important. So it's Friday at 6 p.m., but at, at sunset, the Sabbath, or Saturday, formally began, And the Sabbath was a day of rest. And so sensing and fearing that these three men that they had crucified might live into the Sabbath and then die on the Sabbath, which creates a problem, um, the Roman soldiers decide that they're going to go by and expedite the crucifixion process. They're going to break the legs so that the, the, the criminals, the men, couldn't push up on their feet that they would suffocate it just expedited the death process they get to jesus though they recognize he's dead they put a spear up out comes a mixture of blood and water jesus has died at three so sometime between three and six they verify he's indeed dead so jesus is formally pronounced dead by a roman soldier but his body would be would be just basically thrown into the garbage dump like most would have been if not for the fact that that a a wealthy man, a powerful man by the name of Joseph of Arimathea, along with likely Nicodemus, another biblical character, they go to Pilate and they request special permission to retrieve Jesus' body, to take his body off the cross and lay his body in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb. Pilate grants them the permission. Jesus is removed from the cross. He's placed in Joseph's tomb. The, The Pharisees, the Sanhedrin, go to Pilate hearing of this and they request that guards be placed out in front of the tomb, fearing that someone would try to mess with the body. Pilate also grants that request as well. All of this occurs. Jesus is buried. The tomb is sealed. It's guarded. This all happens before 6 p.m., which is the start of the Sabbath. Now, Saturday on the Sabbath, Jesus' body lies in the tomb. And then on Sunday, resurrection day, Jesus rises from the dead. He's resurrected this third day. Now, if you're like, well, wait a second, how are there three days? There's there's t- two things. First, Jesus predicted that he would rise on the third day. And three days in the grave doesn't imply three full days. And according to the, the narrative, there were three. Jesus spent three days in the tomb, not necessarily three full days. For example, day one is that Jesus was buried on Friday. He had to be before 6 p.m. which is when the sabbath began so jesus was buried on friday day one day two is the fact that jesus laid in the tomb all day on saturday which began at 6 p.m. on friday and concluded at 6 p.m. on saturday once again equating this to our sense of, of the days and then day three is that jesus was resurrected sometime early in the morning sometime between 6 p.m. on saturday and in the morning on Sunday, Jesus was resurrected. And so there are three days um, in that sense. But with the timeline kind of established, I, I want to dig into more of the minutiae now about what Jesus really experienced here. And, and I want to do this by laying out this, that there are six phases to his experience. First, there is what's known as Jesus' pre-arrest uh, period, this phase one, that occurs in the Garden of Gethsemane. According to the gospels, we're told that as Jesus is praying, that Jesus suffered from a, a medical phenomenon known as hemathydrosis, a real condition that occurs when a person who is under really great emotional stress, that the tiny capillaries and their sweat glands rupture, meaning that as they're sweating, it's a mixture of sweat and blood. This is totally consistent with the gospel narrative that Jesus was sweating what appeared to be great droplets of blood, which tells us something. That before anything else had happened, Jesus was indeed suffering emotionally. That there was a stress, an anxiety. Jesus knew what was about to happen, and it weighed heavily. Jesus knew not just the physical pain and the emotional pain, the false accusations not not just all of the things he would experience but but Jesus also knew that that he would take upon himself the shame the guilt the weight of the sins of the world that he who knew no sin through this process would know sin for the first time don't go anywhere We'll pick up that thought when we get back here on the Outlaw Radio Show.
2: Thanks for joining us for this special Good Friday edition of the Outlaw Radio Show. As you've been listening today, you've probably got more questions about the timeline of Good Friday and how, how and when things took place. Pastor Zach is going to talk more about this in the second half of the Outlaw Radio Show, as well as a very succinct description of what Jesus actually experienced. Don't go anywhere. Come back in a moment. And now here's Zach Adams on the Outlaw Radio Show with more about Good Friday.
0: Welcome back to the Outlaw Radio Show. We've, we've spent our first, uh, first half of the show laying out the timeline for Jesus' week of passion. Um, but we've now segued into the particulars of what Jesus really experienced. On this day we call Good Friday, things began with with emotional stress. Jesus in the garden praying, sweating great droplets of blood, suffering from this phenomenon known as as hemothydrosis, knowing what was coming, praying, if there's any way, may this cup pass, but not my will, but your will be done, submitting himself to the will of his father. Phase one, this pre-arrest phase. But then there's the arrest and the trial, the phase two. You see, over the course of of, a Friday, this night, the morning, Jesus has moved from three different sets of people, the Jewish leaders, Pilate, King Herod. He's moved across Jerusalem to very different locations. As we mentioned in the timeline, Jesus will stand in six different trials which were illegal, by the way. And it's during these trials that Jesus is is not just falsely accused and not just slandered and not just having witnesses brought in to make up lies, but he's struck in the face. He's punched in the face for remaining silent when he was questioned. Jesus, we're also told, is blindfolded beaten while being blindfolded so he couldn't protect himself. He's spat upon. He's taunted to name his his accusers, his attackers. By the time Jesus is ultimately sentenced to death by Pilate, keep in mind, before he ever gets to the scourging, Jesus is already not just sleep deprived, but he's been battered, bruised, He is swollen and bleeding. He is dehydrated. He's exhausted. And then he's sentenced. But before the actual crucifixion, we get to this this phase three, which is the scourging. You see, the scourging was brutal, a Roman scourging was grotesque. Jesus would have been stripped naked. And his hands would have been tied to a post above his head. And Jesus would have been whipped 39 times. It would have been formally sentenced to 40, but it would be 39 plus some grace. 39 times Jesus would have been scourged, whipped ac- across his shoulders, his, his neck, his back, his legs with what was known as a flagrum. Now a flagrum was a very short whip. And the flagrum consisted of several heavy leather thongs that had small bits of stone and rock and glass that were attached to each end. Meaning, Jesus is not whipped in a conventional sense. Every strike of this whip, it would it would sink these stone and this glass and, and these rocks into Jesus's flesh. Meaning that that that, that pulling the whip out every strike. Would inflict incredible bodily harm. Let me just read from, from you an eyewitness of a Roman scourging. One scholar historian writes this At first, the heavy thongs would cut through the skin only. But as the blows continue, they would cut deeper in the subcontinuous tissue producing first oozing of blood from the capillaries in the veins of the skin, and finally spurting arterial bleeding from vessels and underlying muscles. The small balls of of lead first produce large, deep bruises, which are then broken open by subsequent blows. Finally, the skin of the back ends up hanging in long ribbons, and the entire area is unrecognizable. It's a mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it's determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, uh, the beating ceases. So Jesus is is scourged. But then there's a fourth phase, which, which frankly is not often discussed. But he's humiliated. You see, Jesus ends up being untied. And he's allowed to slump They're in Gabbatha, onto the stone pavement. He's wet, saturated in his own blood, likely. And the Roman soldiers then begin to mock him. They begin to to hail Jesus as this, this king of the Jews. The gospel writers tell us that they throw a robe across his shoulders, which instantly becomes saturated, super saturated with his blood and they place a a stick in his hand as a scepter and and they they press a large crown of thorns into his scalp how morbid it would be for someone not only to think of that but then to undertake the process of weaving thorns together and then they press it into his scalp now because the scalp is your your face is vascular very vascular there's copious amounts of bleeding bleeding that, that gets into his eyes stinging jesus can't see and they begin to mock him and they taunt him and they strike jesus repeatedly across the face and they and they rip his scepter the stick from his hand and they strike him across the head which does what it drives these thorns deeper into his scalp according to isaiah we're told that they even pluck his beard from his face. And I don't mean to be cute here, but have you ever pulled a nose hair? Oh man, it brings you to tears. Imagine your beard being ripped from your face. They humiliate him, they taunt him. And as they prepare to leave, this robe, which is already likely become adherent to the blood and the serum from his wounds, is then ripped from his back. It's like a band aid causing excruciating pain which leads to phase 5 the journey you see a heavy blood-stained dirty unsanitary beam is tied across his his shoulders these bloody shoulders and jesus is forced to begin the slow journey towards golgotha the execution site the weight of the beam Coupled with his blood loss, what happens? Jesus naturally stumbles and he falls. He can't brace himself because his arms are tied to the beam, so he falls, crashing to the ground. With each fall, what happens? This The rough wood ends up gouging into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. His human muscles are being pushed beyond their endurance. Jesus can't make it. So the Roman soldiers, they pull Simon from the crowd. He has to now carry the cross, but Jesus is still forced to make his way to the execution site, which leads to phase six, the crucifixion at Golgotha. The beam is placed on the ground and Jesus's back is thrown to the wood. His shoulders are pressed against the beam. The legionnaires quickly drive a heavy square wrought iron nail through the wrists. Deep into the wood, they move to the other side, repeating the action, likely pulling his arm out, removing his shoulders from the joints so that he can't pull back. The beam is then lifted and dropped into place. Imagine it hits the ground and there's this jolt of pain in his arms. At this juncture, the left foot is pressed against the right foot. Both feet are extended and a solitary nail is driven through the arch of each foot into the wooden beam. You see, the only way that Jesus can avoid the stretching torment of his hands is by pushing himself upward, placing the full weight uh, on this nail that's been driven to his feet. Every time he tries to breathe pure agony occurs as the nail begins to tail tear through the nerves and his metatorsal bones of his feet his arms fatigue coupled with dehydration and the loss of blood waves of cramps begin to sweep over his muscles nodding them in deep relentless throbbing pain and with each of these cramps comes the inability to now push himself up and inhale and exhale Jesus fights just to raise himself up to get a short breath It's a terrible thing, a tragic thing, an excruciating thing. One of the missions of Outlaw Radio is to bring your attention to ministry resources that will benefit your personal study of the Bible and spiritual growth. With this in mind, we want you to check out Ravi Zacharias International Ministries. Not only is their vision to help the thinker believe, but they exist to help the believer think. To accomplish both of these aims, their website, rzim.org, is filled with tons of free resources aimed at not only answering your own difficult questions, but with the intention of providing the necessary tools to defend your faith in an ever-growing hostile world. Once again, you can learn more about Ravi Zacharias' international ministries by visiting rzim.org. That's rzim.org. Jesus has been crucified. He's been nailed to a tree. His hands have been nailed. Singular nail through his feet. For hours, Jesus experiences. Six hours on the cross experiences unrelenting pain that's caused by cycles of twisting and joint-rendering cramps. He has to fight himself just to get a short breath. He's he's experiencing intermittent asphyxiation. He's, He's... he can't breathe. Searing agony occurs as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down the rough timber, trying to breathe. You see, over time, Jesus' heart, it struggles to pump heavy, thick, sluggish, oxygen-deprived blood into his tissues. Over time, over these six hours, a deep crushing pain begins to rise within his chest. Around his heart, the pedicardium begins to fill with serum starts to compress his heart. Jesus' tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to grasp just small gulps of air to stay alive. At some point, Jesus can feel the chill of death creeping through his body. We're told, with one last surge of strength, Jesus, he presses his torn feet against the nail. He straightens his legs. He takes a deeper breath than normal. He cries out, Father, into thy hands, I commit my spirit. He says, it is finished. And he dies. You see, most crucifixions would last for days. (laughs) The reality, most men never survived a scourging. And yet with the Jewish Sabbath beginning at sundown, the legionnaire decides to expedite the process. He's going to break the legs of the prisoners. But then they come to Jesus and they believe he's already dead. So to verify, they drive a spear through the fifth inner space between the ribs, upwards, through the pedicardium into the heart. Scripture says that immediately there came out a flow of blood and water. You see, the post mortem evidence is that Jesus died Not in the the usual crucifixion death by suffocation. You see, Jesus died of heart failure due to the constriction of the heart by the fluid surrounding the pedicardium. Now, with the few minutes that we have left, I want to ask you a question. Like, who did this to Jesus? Like, who's guilty? Who's responsible? Who's to blame? You know, for years, the Jews, the Jewish Christians would blame the Romans, specifically Pontius Pilate. And years that followed Christians, Gentile Christians, would, would begin to blame the Jews, which became the justification for, for all kinds of crimes against the Hebrews. You know, there, there are some who, who blame Satan. New York Times author and pastor David Platt, he tweeted a quote recent for, recently from Anglican theologian uh, John Winham, uh, stating, at the heart of the story stands the cross of Christ where evil did its worst and met its matched. Jews blame Romans, Christians blame Jews, some blame Satan. You know, I don't know if you've ever been in a Good Friday service, but there are many evangelicals who preach that you and I, Are actually the ones really guilty? That you and I killed Jesus? That we're to blame? You know, the answer in actuality may surprise you. Do you want to know who did this to Jesus? God did. God killed Jesus, the Father killed his Son. Now, Now, to understand that radical idea, you need to understand a few truths. First, God is holy and he's just. Therefore, God must righteously judge and punish sinners. It was clear from the beginning that the wages of sin was death. And the execution of this divine judgment is referred to as the wrath of God. (laughs) Please note, the Bible actually speaks more of God's anger and wrath than it does his grace and mercy. You see, God is holy and just. Therefore, God must righteously judge and punish sinners. But thirdly, God is also love and he definitely desires reconciliation with sinners, which leads to a question, right? Like how can God lovingly save a sinner while still righteously judge sin? And the answer, according to the Bible, is that God can pour out his wrath towards a person's sin on a substitute sacrifice, Now, there's some requirements to a substitutionary sacrifice. A sacrifice must be human. Only a human can be an adequate sacrifice. The sacrifice must be sinless. Like, the substitute can't be equally guilty of his own sin. And thirdly, a sacrifice must be willing. A forced participant would nullify the effects. You see, the Bible tells us that Jesus willingly chose to be our substitute sacrifice that in order to both demonstrate God's hatred of sin and love for the sinner, the son of God sacrificially took upon himself the wrath of God by dying on the cross. Philippians 2.8, And being found in the appearance of a man, Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. Romans 5.9 and 10, Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Jesus. For if we were enemies, we are now reconciled to God through the death of Jesus. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Understand, friend, the horrors that Jesus experienced that execution day, Good Friday, which included the scourging and the humiliation and his crucifixion, encompassed the wrath of God towards sin. Yes, the Jewish leaders instigated Jesus' death. Sure, Pontius Pilate sanctioned his execution. Indeed, it was the legionnaires who carried out the dastardly deed. And undoubtedly, Satan gloated over Jesus' pain and torment. But never forget, it was God the Father who offered his son as a sacrifice for sin. The wrath of God poured out on Jesus was the wrath that God had reserved for you. It was the wages of your sin. His wrath had its sight set on you. It just so happened on Good Friday that Jesus stood in your place. The punches that Jesus took from the temple guards were meant for your face. The lashes Jesus endured from the flagrum were meant for your back. The cross Jesus was laid upon by the legionnaires had your name on it. The nails which pierced his hands had been sized for your hands and feet. And yet Jesus willingly took it all upon himself for you. You know, the truth is that you have one of two options. And this is this is the application, because I don't know who you are. I don't know where you are. I don't know who's listening to this. I don't know your backstory. I don't know where you are with Jesus. I don't know why you're listening to this. Maybe you don't even know why, but you are you need to know there are only two options. You can choose to stand in the crosshairs of the wrath of a righteous God on your own. You can say, I'm good enough. I've been good enough. And you can try it. Or two, you can kneel at the cross and accept the grace of a righteous Savior who took your place. You can stand in the crosshairs of a wrath of a righteous God, or you can kneel at a cross and accept what Jesus did on your behalf. Those are your options. The only options. John 3. No, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. There's another John 3, verse that's just as important john three thirty six. whoever believes in the son has eternal life but whoever rejects the son will not see life for god's wrath remains on him see that's that's the option believing in jesus accepting what he did on your behalf the payment of a debt you could never satisfy or your own haughty arrogant and prideful thought that you can be good enough when you can't well you've been listening to the outlaw radio show if you liked what you heard i want to ask that you would do one of two things first call your local station and just say that you're thankful that they're carrying outlaw radio in your community they don't make any money this is this is a ministry for a lot of these folks seeing God's word proclaimed. But I'd also ask that you'd visit our website. Our website is outlawradio.org. And from the site, you can access our podcast, which is available on iTunes as well as Google Play. You can listen again to this episode. You can listen to all previous episodes, but this is what you can also do. You can share this episode, the full audio, on your social network. You can send it to a friend, someone that needs to hear what Jesus did and why it's relevant, why it's important. Additionally, let me once again encourage you to contact me. If you like Twitter or handle radio underscore outlaw, send me an email info at outlawradio.org or facebook.com slash the radio outlaw. Once again, I'm Zach Adams, and I hope you join me again this time next week for the Outlaw Radio Show.
2: You've been listening to the one and only Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. As mentioned, if you like what you heard, be sure to connect with us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out our website by visiting outlawradio.org. To listen again to today's show, access our daily two-minute broadcast or full-length episodes, check out the Outlaw Radio Podcast, available on both iTunes and Google Play. Once again, don't forget, we want to hear from you. If you have questions, want to challenge something that was said, or would like to submit topics you'd like to hear Zach discuss on air, you can either email us at info at outlawradio.org, or you can leave a voicemail at 678-883-3316. Finally, programs like Outlaw Radio are wonderful tools God can use to change lives. But as with any ministry, there are expenses involved. First, if you're not tithing to your local church, you need to do so. And yet, if God has laid it upon your heart to extend your generosity above and beyond your tithe, we'd ask that you prayerfully consider supporting Outlaw Radio. Every donation ensures this show remains on your local station. To learn how you can become a financial partner, please visit outlawradio.org. Well, that's all the time we have for today. We hope you join us again next week for the Outlaw Radio Show with Zach Adams. Outlaw Radio is a ministry of Calvary 316 in partnership with his productions.